Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Podity. For many of you, this week is spring break. So if you're listening while on vacation, extra thanks and praise to you. But if you are on spring break, I fully expect you to be partying too hard to listen to me. And if you are on spring break and partying, I kind of hope that you're not in Aruba. We all know about the horrific disappearance of Natalie Holloway in 2005. But did you know that there are many more people who have disappeared from the island paradise under mysterious circumstances who have yet to be found? If you want to know more about these cases, keep listening. But if you're currently in Aruba or a member of the Aruban government, stop listening now. For most people, a tropical island vacation is the epitome of spring brightness. According to the official Aruba.com website, they are, quote, one happy island, end quote. And I'm sure for the most part they are. But for some people, the island brought anything but happiness. Aruba is an island located in the mid-south of the Caribbean Sea, and it's actually part of the Netherlands. It's relatively small, clocking in at only about 20 miles long and 6 miles wide. That's just a shade over 75 square miles that holds around 116,600 residents. That's smaller than the town that I live in. However small it is, it still hosts around 2 million tourists per year. And 80% of those tourists come from the United States. Three quarters of Aruba's gross national product come from tourism. So I hope I don't get a call from the Aruban government when I ask, Aruba, what the hell is going on down there? I'm shouting like this because on www.visitaruba.com, which is a tourism website, there is an actual list of people who've gone missing after a visit to Aruba. Again, this is a website that's trying to get people to come visit Aruba. So it's very telling that there's also a warning attached to it. A warning in the form of a missing persons list, no less. Most of you are well aware of the disappearance of Natalie Holloway because it was widely covered in the media. In May of 2005, 18-year-old Natalie celebrated her high school graduation with a trip to Aruba, along with 124 of her classmates and seven chaperones. The group had so much fun that the Holiday Inn they were staying at politely asked them to never return. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds pretty typical of any group outing from about senior year of high school to around senior year of college. Much to the Holiday Inn's relief, the kids were scheduled to fly home on May 30th, and they made that fun last to the very last minute, partying at a nightclub called Carlos and Charlie's until 1.30 in the morning of May 30th, the day they were going to fly out. But things took a dark turn when Natalie left the club with a Dutch college student named Joran Vandersloot. She did not show up at the airport later that afternoon, and she missed her flight home. Her packed luggage and passport were later found in her hotel room. Duran Vandersloot was questioned extensively, but Natalie was never found. Almost exactly five years later to the date, Vandersloot murdered a woman named Stephanie Flores Ramirez. He did confess to murdering Stephanie, saying that he only did it because she was snooping around in his laptop and stumbled upon information that linked him to the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. In January of 2012, he was sentenced to 28 years in prison for Stephanie's murder. However, he was never charged with anything in connection to Natalie's disappearance. 
That same month, Natalie was officially declared dead. However, her family is still searching for closure, as are most of the families of the people we're going to talk about today. If you have any information about any of them, there will be links in the show notes to whom you can contact to report it, as well as links to information about each person, including their physical descriptions. During a search for Natalie in 2010, a human jawbone washed up on a beach in Aruba. Initially, it was believed that it could possibly have belonged to Natalie, but forensic testing concluded that while it had likely come from a Caucasian person, the single tooth it held was a wisdom tooth. Since Natalie had had her wisdom teeth removed, the bone did not belong to her. And although Natalie Holloway is the most infamous disappearance that occurred in Aruba, it's unfortunately not the only one, not by far. Six years later, 35-year-old Robin Colson Garner vanished while on vacation in Aruba. Robin had met a guy on an online dating site, 50-year-old Maryland businessman Gary Giordano, and the two decided to jet off to the island for a romantic getaway. On the afternoon of August 2, 2011, the couple had an early dinner and drinks at the Rum Reef Bar and Grill. ABC News reported that workers at the restaurant where Robin was last seen alive noted that she was so heavily intoxicated that she barely touched her salad. They were surprised to learn later that she and Gary had gone snorkeling afterwards, not only because of the drinking, but also because she was in full makeup with her hair completely done and she was wearing a dress. Everything one would do for a night out to dinner, not a swim in the ocean. Right before the couple left, a photo was taken of her in that dress. I've seen the photo and I understand the restaurant staff's confusion. The dress is a long ankle length maxi dress and she's wearing stacked wedge heels too. Not exactly snorkeling gear. The timestamp on the photo was 4.12 p.m. Less than two hours later at 6.02 p.m., video surveillance footage showed Giordano tapping on the windows of the bar trying to get the staff's attention. 18 minutes later at 6.20, he finally tracked someone down and asked them to call the police. According to Gary, he and Robin had decided to go snorkeling at nearby Baby Beach after dinner. The two were swimming in the normally tranquil waters when the weather suddenly turned, making the waters choppy and the current strong. Gary said he tapped on Robin's leg to signal her to swim back to shore with him, but when he reached the bank and looked behind him, she was gone. Believing that she'd been swept out to sea and drowned, he left the beach and went for help. The story sounds like a tragic result of a combination of water sports mixed with too much alcohol. However, Things got complicated a few days later when Giordano tried to leave the country. When stopped by U.S. Customs, he told them that he had to change flights because of the weather and that Robin, his travel companion when he entered the country, was not leaving with him because she was, quote, taking another flight. Giordano was detained by Customs and he later argued that he hadn't done anything wrong because he'd been told by authorities that it was okay for him to leave. But even if they had told him that it was okay, it was not a good look when it came out that Robin actually had a live-in boyfriend back in Maryland. The boyfriend was completely unaware that she'd been in Aruba with another guy, one whom the boyfriend had never met in person, but whom Robin had mentioned in passing as her, quote, gay friend. Robin had told her boyfriend a cover story, that she was going on a family trip to Orlando, and it doesn't seem like Robin's boyfriend was in close contact with her family, otherwise this ploy would have fallen through pretty quickly. In fact, her boyfriend did not even know that she was missing until three days after the police had informed the family. No one was aware that she was actually in Aruba with Gary Giordano. And since no one was aware that Robin was in Aruba with her totally not-gay friend, 
It looked even worse when Giordano tried to cash in the $1.5 million travel life insurance policy that he'd purchased on her life. Yes, he'd purchased a life insurance policy, especially for the trip, which he attempted to cash in just two days after Robin disappeared. Giordano continued to proclaim his innocence while also claiming that the day Robin went missing, she'd taken a sleeping pill. This was on top of the vodka that she drank that afternoon, which begs the question, who would decide or even could decide to go snorkeling after all that? The ABC News article also said that Robin spent thousands of dollars on hair extensions, which made it unlikely that she would even go snorkeling at all. As someone who's once spent an embarrassing amount of money on hair extensions, I gotta agree with this. I've gone far longer than was healthy to avoid washing my hair, much less getting it wet when I had extensions, in order to preserve them. Robin's boyfriend agreed too, telling ABC News that she would never have gone swimming and messed her hair and makeup up after going through all the trouble of fixing it. Additionally, weather reports showed that the weather on the day in question was completely calm and mild. There was nothing to account for the mysterious climate change that resulted in the choppy waters that required Robin and Giordano to swim back to shore, or the supposed strong current that Giordano proposed was to blame for dragging Robin underwater. A witness who was fishing on the beach that day said that he saw Robin and Giordano take a walk along the reef around 4 p.m. and then get into their vehicle and drive away a short while later. That witness said that the two never went in the water. Despite search efforts, Robin was never found, and Gary Giordano was never charged in connection with her disappearance. He maintains that she drowned or was maybe kidnapped and human trafficked. That second one confuses me because how would one be kidnapped from the water unless maybe the traffickers recruited a gang of sharks to work for them or something like that? Anyway, Gary floats these theories and more, as well as refuting a lot of the information I just told you in a book that he published called The Aruba Files, The Redemption of Gary V. Giordano. The Google Books description of Gary's book reads, quote, While on vacation in August of 2011, Robin Garner and Gary Giordano were enjoying a beautiful Caribbean day together on Baby Beach located at the south end of Aruba when tragedy struck as both entered the water and only one returned. A few days later, headlines from around the world reported on Gary Giordano's arrest for murder, manslaughter, kidnapping, and insurance fraud. He soon found himself in the center of a worldwide witch hunt fueled by tabloid news, outrageous headlines, fame seekers, judicial corruption, revenge, and betrayal. Unrealistic comparisons of Natalie Holloway and Joran Vandersloot became the foundation of the media circus. Murder for money became the punchline. Robin Gardner was a beautiful woman who was just beginning to realize her full potential and Gary Giordano a successful businessman and world traveler. While still grieving for the loss of his good friend and lover, Gary, caged like an animal in solitary confinement, mentally and physically tortured and repeatedly interrogated for hours, days, and months in the infamous Aruba KIA prison, never gave up hope. Back home in the United States, the media firestorm raged on as the FBI entered the frenzy in a highly televised search and seizure of Gary's Maryland home, and a grand jury was convened to address allegations of insurance fraud. Gary Giordano was released from KIA prison on November 28, 2011, after four months of torture in KIA prison. No evidence of a crime ever existed, and Gary was never charged with a crime. Now, in the Aruba Files, Gary Giordano breaks his silence to reveal for the very first time what really happened in Aruba, and how and why the world media demonized him. 
In unprecedented fashion, Gary shares scores of confidential FBI reports and FBI email correspondence usually sealed for decades, as well as Aruba interrogation reports and confidential recorded phone transcripts. He describes in detail the torture he endured and exposes who got away with lying to the FBI and Aruba government, which resulted in prolonging his torture and ultimate destruction of his business, name, and forever altering his and his three sons' futures. He describes in detail the media's continued manipulation of the truth following his release and the untold story of the Baby Beach cover-up and further unnecessary loss of life. As in Aruba, Gary remains a target for local law enforcement and continues to be harassed by those trying to make a name for themselves. Gary never gave up hope and remains stronger than ever. He hopes his story will empower others to persevere in the face of overwhelming adversity and expose judicial corruption and media malice. Gary Giordano received no money or financial gains associated with Robin's death and lost millions due to the real perpetrators revealed in his book. Gary is a staunch advocate of the wrongfully accused, continues to fight for the truth, and is dedicated to exposing judicial abuse of power in the United States and abroad. This book is dedicated to the memory and life of Robin Garner. End quote. Now, I didn't read Jordana's book, and it's not even available on Amazon anymore. The reviews aren't the greatest, but maybe what he's saying is 100% true. But it strikes me that he continuously says that there was no financial motivation and that he received no money associated with Robin's death. Because while that is true, it's not for lack of trying. He did take out a policy on her life, and he did try to cash it in. The only reason he didn't gain financially due to her death was because his claim was denied. According to court records online, it was denied because he falsified information on the insurance application, such as saying that he and Robin were exclusive partners, as in in a serious relationship, when in fact there were more like casual acquaintances who had a download thing. And later he sued the insurance provider for $3.5 million for denying the claim, so he was trying to get money, he just wasn't successful at it. But like I said, Gary Giordano was never charged with murder, and Robin's remains were never found. An article on CBS News pointed out that two other Americans drowned in the same spot where Gary claims Robin drowned, or slash was human trafficked, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that it happened just like he said it did, and the insurance stuff was just a morbid coincidence. Since he has not been charged, we have to presume him innocent until proven otherwise. In 2017, the Huffington Post reported that Robin's sister indicated that she planned to submit her DNA to compare to the jawbone that was found during the search of Natalie Holloway to see if it might belong to Robin. I haven't found anything to follow up on that, though, so it's unclear what that DNA revealed. Whether Robin's disappearance was due to foul play or a snorkeling trip gone terribly wrong, or even the darker theory that she was human trafficked, her family is still missing their loved one. Female tourists aren't the only ones that go missing in Aruba, though. On August 24th of 1996, 35-year-old Richard Henriquez was being treated at a local medical facility when he vanished. This is about all the information that exists about his case, other than his family is still looking for him after nearly 27 years without him. Richard is described as Hispanic in nationality and fluent in four languages, English, Dutch, Spanish, and Papamiento. On November 27th of 2007, right in the middle of the holiday season, 29-year-old prison guard Jose Manuel Vincenzo Trom left his home in Aruba at 8.30 in the morning. He never returned. 
According to VisitAruba.com, his pickup truck and all of his belongings were left behind. He was last seen wearing dark blue tennis shorts, a gray t-shirt, and black slippers. Based on all of this, it sounds like he wasn't planning on going too far from home. There's a Twitter page devoted to finding out what happened to Jose, and it's called Justice for Vincenzo. However, there is precious little more to tell you about this case than the one right before it, except that his family and friends still have no answers as to what became of him 15 years later. Willard Larson's family still wonders where their son is, too. In June of 1999, the 39-year-old Seattle construction worker, who went by the nickname Buddy or Bud, was staying at Windsurf Village. It was his second trip to Aruba, which was a dream destination for an avid windsurfer like him. In fact, Bud had purchased a windsurfing package, which included a hotel, airfare, and windsurfing equipment for the total experience. In a 2005 episode of On the Record, Bud's sister-in-law, Mary, said that on June 9th, Bud set off for the surf shop to get the gear that he'd reserved. He was wearing a t-shirt, beach shorts, and no shoes, exactly the outfit that you'd need for windsurfing. Since he'd prepaid for everything, he'd hidden his wallet, ID, cash, and credit cards under a chair cushion in his hotel room so he wouldn't lose them in the water. He left the room with no more and no less of what he needed for a blissful day on the ocean. Only when he arrived at the surf shop, he was told that they didn't have the equipment he'd already paid for. Bud was understandably aggravated. Windsurfing was the whole reason he'd come to Aruba in the first place, but there's nothing he could do about it. He left the surf shop and began walking down the beach. Bud never made it into the water. That was the last anyone saw of him. When Bud didn't return to the hotel to claim his bags and passport, the hotel called the police. According to Mary, they did very little to investigate Bud's disappearance. In fact, they didn't even contact his family to let them know that Bud was missing. Mary said they only found out that something had happened to Bud when he didn't return to the States as scheduled. His wife called the hotel in Aruba and the surprised hotel clerk had to break the news to her. He'd assumed that the police had already reached out and informed her and was dismayed to learn that they hadn't, as they had been slow to get involved in the first place. Bud's family contacted the FBI, who told them that there was nothing they could do as they had no jurisdiction. So Bud's brothers had no choice but to hop on a plane to Aruba and go search for themselves. They didn't find him, and at the point that the interview took place six years after Bud disappeared, the family had heard absolutely nothing from the Aruban police. A 2017 follow-up article in International Business Times about Americans who've gone missing in Aruba noted that the authorities have still failed to find any details on what happened to Bud. I haven't been able to find any updates to this day, and every article lists exactly the details that I've told you, so it looks like they've learned nothing more about what happened to him than they did 24 years ago. I don't want to make the Aruban police mad at me, but I sure would not want to go missing in Aruba because it sounds like they truly do the least. Like I said, the island is only 75 square miles. It's hard to imagine that someone didn't see him because he didn't go into the water. Remember, he didn't have cash, a credit card, or even an ID, so it's not like he went looking for another surf shop to rent windsurfing gear from. He would have needed to return to his hotel room for that. Gary Makings was another water sports buff who went missing in paradise. In January of 2002, 59-year-old Gary traveled to Aruba and stayed at a luxury villa called Aruba House. On the morning of Tuesday the 29th, he went snorkeling at Boca Catalina and never returned. Aruban authorities have long since concluded searching for Gary, but his family still has no answers as to what happened and continue their search for him. 
It's certainly possible that some of these deaths occurred in the water, but authorities certainly know the currents and where a body's likely to end up should someone drown. It's happened plenty over the years. Why then are these deaths so quickly chalked up to drowning, but never concluded with recovering a body? Or in one case, bodies plural. On August 16th of 2001, an entire family went missing from Aruba. And, no shocker, the Aruban police have no clue what happened to them. The Lubuvik family were from Slovenia, which is a small country next to Italy. Goran Lubuvik and his wife Navina had just purchased a large boat and planned to cruise around and visit the islands all around Aruba with their two sons. Igor and Yvonne, who were 13 and 14, were probably really stoked about that trip. They hired a local skipper to help them navigate the trip, and no one has heard from them since. It's unclear whether they ever even made it into the water or what even became of the skipper. Again, there's very little information aside from what I've just shared with you, but their family still holds out hope that they one day might learn the truth. In 2007, during the ongoing search for Natalie Holloway, the wreckage of a small 50-foot catamaran was discovered off the coast of Aruba. Though it's believed that the Lubuvik's boat was larger than 50 feet, it was reported that there was a small chance that it might have belonged to the missing family. However, there are no follow-up articles saying if the remains of the boat were recovered or what the findings were. I just want to say that the family search for Natalie Holloway uncovered more evidence pertaining to missing persons than the Aruba police ever did. Please don't arrest me for that, Aruba police. You have no jurisdiction here. Even though there are many, many, many cases of people who've mysteriously disappeared in Aruba, the final case that's listed on visitaruba.com is that of 23-year-old Amy Lynn Bradley. Amy was a Virginia native who was about to graduate from Longwood University with a degree in physical education. She was athletic, having attended the university on a basketball scholarship and had worked as a lifeguard. She had a job waiting for her after graduation at a computer consulting firm, but before she entered the workforce, she was going to celebrate that milestone by going on a cruise with her family aboard the Royal Caribbean ship Rhapsody of the Seas. According to FBI.gov, on Saturday, March 21, 1998, the ship departed San Juan, Puerto Rico for its first port of call, the island of Aruba. Two days later, on March 23, the ship left Aruba, headed for its next stop, Curacao. Curacao is pretty close by, about 70 miles east. It wouldn't have taken long for the boat to make it there, but it was still in the water in the early morning hours of March 24th when Amy and her brother Brad were partying at the ship's nightclub. Their parents had already turned in for the night, but the siblings wanted to stay out later, eventually hanging out with the band that had played in the club that night. At 3.45 a.m., Brad returned to the room that he and Amy shared. Amy was right behind him. Their stateroom door lock log reported that she entered the room five minutes later. Brad and Amy stayed up a while longer, talking and visiting, before Amy went out onto the balcony with her cigarettes and lighter to lounge in the reclining deck chair that she'd slept on the previous night. At around 5.30 a.m., Brad and Amy's dad, Ron, got up to check on the kids. He spotted Amy out on the balcony, her legs visible from the hips down as she lay on the lounge chair. Ron went back to bed to doze a little bit, but he awoke again 30 minutes later and returned to the kids' stateroom where he found Brad, but not Amy. In the short time that he'd been gone, Amy went missing. The ship authorities hesitated to announce Amy's disappearance. They were worried about waking up their passengers at such an early hour. 
they continued to delay and allowed the majority of their 2,000 passengers to disembark in Curacao before they finally made an announcement over the PA system, asking Amy to report to the purser's desk. According to multiple sources that I'll list in the show notes, this delay might have made the difference between Amy being found and not. Multiple passengers later reported seeing her that morning on the ship in various places, but because they waited to make an announcement, no one was aware that she was missing and so did not notice the young woman leaving the ship. Once it was clear that Amy was no longer aboard, authorities were alerted and a four-day search ensued. It was initially believed that Amy may have fallen overboard, but like I said earlier, she was a strong swimmer, and there was no evidence supporting that theory. Sea and land were scoured, but there was no sign of Amy. Later reports made it clear that Amy might have been the victim of human trafficking, and that when the passengers were allowed to disembark, Amy might have left the boat with her captors. In August of 1998, five months after Amy's disappearance, a Canadian tourist claimed to have seen her walking down a beach in Curacao with two men. The tourist said that the woman was clearly trying to get his attention, and he tried to follow, but eventually he lost sight of her at a cafe. Amy had several distinct tattoos, and the witness said that he was close enough to her that he could see them clearly, and that he was completely certain that it was her. In January of 1999, 10 months after Amy went missing, a U.S. Navy petty officer claimed to have visited a brothel in Curacao and encountered a woman who said her name was Amy Bradley. She begged him for help and said that she was being held against her will. The officer said that he did not report the incident for fear of being disciplined by the Navy for visiting a brothel. That is, until he saw Amy's picture in a magazine and realized that it was the same woman who'd begged him for help. In March of 2005, exactly seven years since Amy was last seen by her family, a witness said that while she was in a department store restroom in Barbados, a young woman entered with three men. She heard the men threaten the woman to follow through on a deal, and then they left her alone in the restroom. Once they were gone, the witness said that she approached the woman to see if she was okay. The woman replied that her name was Amy and that she was from Virginia. Before she could say anything else, the men reappeared and hustled her out of the bathroom. The witness called the police and they were able to make composite sketches of the three men and the woman. Despite this, the investigation went nowhere. Amy remains missing to this day. The jawbone that washed up on the beach has not been conclusively connected to her, and it remains strongly suspected that she was the victim of human trafficking and that someone perhaps boarded the boat in Aruba and left with her in Curacao. Having lived in a tourist town myself, I know firsthand how authorities work to keep crime out of the news in order to preserve the tourism revenue that keeps them afloat. However, it seems like the Aruban authorities' strategy is to do the least amount of investigating possible when people go missing and stay quiet in hopes that everyone will forget and just drop the subject. But the families of the missing will never forget and hopefully they never drop it. I, for one, will never, ever go to Aruba and will discourage everyone I know from going as well because it sounds like if you go missing there, very little will be done by the authorities to find you. Listen, I'm not saying that I know this for sure to be true, but after reading the stories of those who have gone and were never heard from again, it sure sounds that way. Please check the show notes out and click on the links to each person's name so that you can see their physical descriptions and who to contact if you have any information regarding their disappearance. Thanks in advance for your help. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy your spring break, and I sure hope you're not in Aruba right now. Wherever you are, stay safe. Thanks for spending a bit of your week with me today.
I hope that you'll come back and see me again next week, same time, same place, for a little more strangeness and a little less sadness. We'll see you then.